It's probably one of the richest scriptures out of the whole book of Hebrews today. And it's, a bit, it's kind of a bit odd for me to be preaching on this because I just think, well, what, can, what else can you say? But the odd thing about it is that it's, it's a scripture that everyone probably knows reasonably well. And I guess the tragedy of, uh, of being in the church for a, a decent amount of time is that rich, deep truths become a little bit boring. Um, maybe, maybe not boring, just uh, they lack their luster. The luster's gone and they're not quite as special as what they used to be. I mean, in reality, the scripture that was read out by uh, Alastair today, uh, we could, we honestly, we could just sit and probably just chew it over and meditate on it for hours and hours and hours. I could probably, I reckon you guys won't be surprised by this, but I feel like I could preach on it for about eight weeks. You know, I mean, there's so much you're going, yeah, you could, and he probably wouldn't even go home. <laughs> He'd just stay at church and keep preaching. Anyway, we could do it because there's no school now, but let's not get into that. So uh, I'm going to have a swing at it. It's, uh, this is not going to be uh, out of this world deep and profound, but the truth is uh, out of this world deep, deep and profound, and I hope that somehow you just get to plug into it. We um, bought our blo- block of land across the road there uh, about two years ago, uh, two and a half years ago, and uh, we were pretty chuffed with it. We felt like it was something that God wanted us to do. Uh, but as you'd be aware, the New England Highway is just up kind of off the b- back of our block up the top there. And uh, so we, got, we had a house built by a good mate of mine and we, uh, we were moving into the house and uh, we started having negotiations with our neighbours to get a fence up, all right? Because four young boys, roadkill, major highway, it's, it all goes pretty well together, all right? And we didn't want it to go well together so we thought we need to get a fence up, all right? Uh, the neighbour up the back, lovely, lovely old man, suggested maybe we could just have a barbed wire fence. I'm just going, that's not going to work with four boys, <laughs> all right? So I managed to persuade him, but there was uh, one of the neighbours, uh, one of the other neighbours comes to the church, he was fine, he just, we'll just pay half, because you know the legislation, you've got to pay half, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, the, the other ones on the other side, I, I won't tell you their name in case they ever get to listen to this, but the, the neighbours on the other side were really a pain in the hiding, to be honest, a big pain, and they just didn't want to come to the party in terms of paying half the fence, right? And we just spent all this money building the house and you're just going to go, and the last thing I want to do is shell out your money for the fence that you're supposed to pay half for, you know? So, and, so I went out to their house, right? This is before anything happened. I went out to their house. I knew where they lived. Um, so I went out to their house and I knocked on the door and they weren't home. The son was there. He gave, them, gave, them, uh, gave me their phone number. So uh, I rang their phone number and then they just started stalling, all right? They were just stalling. One thing after the other, they just kept stalling. They said, we want to have a Caliban fence. I'm just going, are you serious? Like on a 120-metre boundary? Have you ever seen a Caliban fence on a long boundary? They look terrible, all right? Because they move, you know, and it looks like a snake, some kind of tin snake going up the side of your, side of your house. So we're just going, oh, look, there's no other Caliban fences in the whole estate because that's part of the legislation. And so we're going backwards and forwards. And then they, I came... I, kind of came up with a good quote, and I actually had a few quotes, sent it to them, and it just, I'm telling you, it just started to get messy, right? And um, they just, they wouldn't return my calls. I was trying to be nice, all right? So I know what I'm talking about, trying to be nice. And then I'm starting to think, no, nah, what these guys need is an Old Testament prophet, all right? <laughs> they, just, they just need to get scorched. I'm going to turn into Jeremiah here. So one day, one day I just said to Ange, I said, I am absolutely jack of this. All right, I'm writing them a letter. And she goes, Pete, don't. And I said, no, I'm writing a letter. It's like, I'm just going to quote something out of Jeremiah about halfway through and just give it to them, all right? 
And uh, Anne's just, Pete, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do that, just be nice about it, right? And what I ended up doing, because I'd already spoken to the solicitor that helped us out with the land, and they gave us all the legislation and told us everything we were supposed to do. Um, anyway, in the end, I wrote this letter and I said, look, and it was nice, and it was, I, I credit my wife for doing this, I said, look, here's the thing, I've got four kids, there's a major highway next door, I've been trying to work this out with you, you haven't come to the party, we haven't come to any kind of agreement, I've done everything that I should have done, I've, in a sense, I've probably written, I've, I've done more than what I had to have done. And uh, I said at the end, I said, if, if we can't come to an agreement on this fence, I said, we're going to have to go to a mediator. All right? Because we just, we just couldn't agree. And it was, it was starting to get messy on the phone when I was asking for, for things that needed to be done and they just wouldn't come to the party. And the Queensland Government actually provides a, I don't know, a fence mediator. I don't know what that is. Well, that's not, that's not their name, but imagine going to parties and saying, what do you do? Oh, I mediate over fences. It's going, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's nice. But, and I just wrote this at the end, right? Because a mediator, the deal with a mediator is you've got two parties at odds with each other and they can't come to an agreement. And the mediator actually comes in and the, the, uh, the agreement that the mediator uh, settles upon in... Uh, what you come up with, as far as I understand, is pretty binding on both parties. So for me, it was like, I'm going to go there and I mightn't get what I want, but whatever they decide, that's going to be the agreement that we're going to have. And uh, oh, I don't know, I think about three days before the deadline, before I told them I was going to ring for a mediator, I got a letter back signed saying that they'll agree to pay for half of it, and it all kind of disappeared, all right? But it's this whole idea of uh, mediator that comes out really, really clearly in this scripture in Hebrews chapter 4. Okay, because here's the problem. The problem is that we've got God really, really angry. I mean, Israel and Hamas have got nothing on what we've done to God, all right? But the weird thing about it is whilst we've got God angry with the things that we've done, um, we're actually pretty angry with him, all right? You have to be pretty knocked with someone to kill him, all right? Which is kind of what happened in, uh, in the Gospels, that Jesus actually got killed because humans um, didn't want... To, uh, to listen to him and didn't want to do what he said. And this is what you see in uh, the book of Romans, is that we are actually God's enemies. So you've got this situation between us and God where we're at each other. We're just at each other. Now, there's, uh, and that's not to say that, that some, there's some part of us that actually wants God, but we, we just don't want God on his terms. We want him on our terms. We want him to do what we want him to do, and when he doesn't do it, we get a little bit narked with him. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, I mean, the classic line for people who get divorced is that they've got irreconcilable differences. Well, there's no greater irreconcilable difference than what we had between us and God, is there? And it's like, who's going to sort it out? We've got a mess. Like, it's just... And, and there's no mediator you can call, really. I mean, you look at the Old Testament, you've got this continual line of offences that Israel uh, commit against God, and then you've got... God getting angry with them and sometimes punishing them and pouring out judgment and sometimes loving them. Um, not that you always need to separate those two because I think sometimes there's discipline that's a result of love or that's an action that comes out of love. But you've just got this situation that's a mess and who's going to help? Well, Hebrews chapter 4 is really clear about the fact that Jesus helps. And this is a bit of a spin-out in a sense because if you actually go to uh, Revelation chapter 19, uh, and we'll go there in a minute, you actually find out that there's a characteristic of Jesus that is particularly freaky. Last week we looked at the fact that um, 
the Bible or, uh, or God's word is a sword. And uh, we looked last week at the fact that God is actually a very, very careful surgeon with the sword. He could be psychotic in a sense, couldn't he? He could just absolutely cut to shreds with the sword, with the word. But he doesn't. He's actually very gentle. And I hinted at today's message last week that um, today's message actually shows that God's wielding of the sword, the wielding of his word is actually a gentle wielding and a careful wielding. And it brings about healing and goodness. But check this out. This is out of Revelation 19, verse 11 to 15. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And listen to this. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. You get the picture. At the end of history, Jesus will wield his sword in an, in an aggressive sense. And I don't know about you, but I wonder whether you've uh, ever had a situation where you've hung around someone who has specifically gifted in just slicing people apart with their words. Have you ever known someone like that? They're just really, really rude and they're just really, really cutting and you get hurt really, really quick when you're around someone like that. We see, it looks like at the end of history, Jesus' word is going to be that brutal and that almost violent. But it's not like that now. I mean, who would want to be sliced apart by his word? by the things that he says. Who would like to be cut to pieces by what he says? And this, it's not part of my message today, but this, this would be another part of my encouragement to you to love people. Do you want your next door neighbour to be cut apart by his word? Like, Do you want your next door neighbour or, or your friends or your family to come face to face with this, uh, this God riding on a white horse? with a sword that's just going to slice and dice things. Do you really? I mean, I mean, you ought to almost even have a part of your heart that's compassionate toward Adolf Hitler, wouldn't you? I mean, even the worst person, you just go, and that's just, that's going to be terrible. That's going to be really, really bad. But you know what? This is not the picture that we actually see in Hebrews. The picture that we see in Hebrews is totally different to this. What we actually see uh, at the start in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 2 is we actually see that Jesus is a high priest. Now, you guys probably know what, a, what the priesthood is and the high priest is, but basically you've got this set up in the Old Testament that regular people couldn't get direct access to God. So what regular people have to do to connect to God is they have to go through a priest, which is kind of a, a mediator. All right. So in the Old Testament, God's actually set it up for you as, as the, uh, the standard or the, or the structure, he set up a structure for you to see that the whole way through, what you're actually going to need is you're going to need a mediator. You're going to need a go-between to help you. All right? And what you've actually got in the Old Testament is they actually set up the high priest. All right? And the priests used to, it seems like they used to go in and out of the temple and meet up close and personal with God. But then I think it was uh, Aaron's sons just kind of messed it all up and God said, look, you guys can't come in and out whenever you want anymore. Only one of you can come in to the place where I dwell once a year. 
That's all. One day a year, that's all you can have. And that person was called the high priest. And uh, the information I've got from uh, the research that I've done is that there was actually only about 83 high priests um, across the whole of Israelite history through to around about AD 70, somewhere around there. So it's not many, all right? So your high priest is like, you've got all the Levitical priests and then you've got the high priest. He's kind of the top dog and he's ultimately the one that you're actually connecting to God through. He's your mediator. And you know what Hebrews actually calls... Jesus, what does it say there? It says, since then we have a great one, high priest. And when you see that, you've got to think, we've got a great mediator. And you know what? You've got a great problem. And the only hope for someone with a great big problem is to have a great big mediator that helps out. I mean, isn't this the best situation? The person who's the most frustrated and deserves and, and probably could just pour out wrath and anger upon you is actually your mediator. I mean, the word's quite clear that Jesus is the one who is actually going to be the judge at the end of, at the, end of the ages. I mean, there's no better setup than that, is there? I mean, it's like, get on the good side of the person who makes the decision at the end of it all. I mean, it's just absolutely perfect, all right? And the writer of Hebrews goes, listen, this mediator's not just a high priest. Oh, he's great. He is amazing. And it's like as big as your situation gets and as ugly as it gets and as festy as the stuff that you've done in your past gets, there's always going to be hope because you haven't just got a priest, you haven't just got a high priest, you've got the great high priest. You've got the great mediator who's going to speak on your behalf. But what's interesting about this in uh, Hebrews 4 is uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about Jesus as... Jesus, the Son of God. And he's actually bringing in this notion of Jesus' humanity because that's going to be a great help for you too. It's not that Jesus is this great high priest and, and he's God and he's, he's amazing, he's got these amazing abilities, but he's just like you. He's just like you. And so when it gets hard, and we'll get to this uh, in a little bit, but when it gets hard in life, you will have great comfort to know that he's just like you. And you see the writer of Hebrews says, don't give up. And this is the, those who have been here long enough at the project to hear some of our preaching on Hebrews know that that's what Hebrews is all about. Don't give up. He says, Jesus is so good. He's such a great high priest. He's passed through the heavens to be with you. He's like you, so don't give up. Push harder. Even when it gets very, very difficult, don't give up when it gets difficult. So Jesus is a great mediator, amen? He's a great mediator. You know what else he is? He's a sympathetic mediator. This is the next verse, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest, if you want to use our lingo, you could say we don't have a mediator who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What's interesting about this scripture is it's a little bit the reverse of what we see in Hebrews 2 verse 18. Note this, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. 
And one of those is a positive expression of the truth, and one is kind of the reverse negative expression of the truth. All right? Have a look up on the screen there. You can actually see 2 verse 18 there is actually the positive one. He's actually saying there's a positive case for Jesus. He's actually, he understands your weakness, he understands where you're at, and he can identify with you, and he can help you. All right? But it's almost like the writer of Hebrews, by the time he gets to chapter 4, there's some people in the church maybe who are starting to think, no, he's not like us at all. He's not like me at all because he was God. And he, he didn't have the same problems that I had. He, he doesn't have them. He, he didn't have the same hassles. And I think probably uh, in my experience, I'm not sure about you, your experience, you can be the judge of it, but I think there's a real tendency uh, in history, Christian history, Christian history tends to swing between massive, big, awesome, divine Jesus and almost to human Jesus and, and they just don't they don't sit in the middle for very long I could sit there and we enjoy the breeze as we're going past all right and then we end up out at the uh, human Jesus and then people are going oh we've just gone too far he's he's more amazing than that and so we start to swing back this way and we somehow I think in the uh, in Christian circles we tend just to swing from one to the other and the writer of the Hebrews is kind of going well it looks like maybe in uh, the church that this letter is going to be read out in that people have swung Maybe he's not that human. Well, he was. He doesn't have the same problems as us. And that's why the uh, writer says, uh, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses. What's interesting about that is it'd be interesting if we got inside of your head over the last 12 months. Like if I said to you now, I said, Jesus understands the temptations and the stress that you go through. How many times in the last 12 months have you thought, yeah, I know, I know the Bible says he does, but I don't really feel like he does because he, he was God. So, he, 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 well, he's omniscient, right? Which kind of means he knows everything. So, yeah, theoretically. But he doesn't, he doesn't really understand. And it's, it's this weird thing, I reckon, that happens. Is, and I certainly see lots of it in my own life where you actually have theological truth. You have truth about God that runs alongside a, a heart that's often discounting the truth and you're having this internal debate and battle about what's actually true and what's not. And that, and we're not going back to it, but that comes down to that whole question of trust and faith that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. What's interesting about this is, uh, I just want to throw this your way. The person who has felt the full weight of temptation and pressure is, uh, is the person who never gave up under it. Isn't that true? Like you don't, I mean, I could have a, a barbell here with uh, 150 kilos on it, all right? And I might get one end off the ground and you could say, did you feel the full weight? And I'm going, yeah, I felt the full weight. I've got a fucking torn bicep to prove it, all right? Because I wouldn't be able to lift 150 on a, on a bar, all right? But you know, the truth is, I actually don't know the full weight of it. Because I've never got it off the ground. I've never lifted it above my head to feel the full weight of it. And there's a sense in which uh, probably every time that we've given in to temptation, we've never faced up to the full weight of that temptation. Because we gave in early. We, we gave up before the, uh, the full weight was really experienced. C.S. Lewis talks about this in uh, Mere Christianity, and I just want to read you a quick quote because I think he puts it really well. It says, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. 
Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They've lived in a sheltered life. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows the full, to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. It's a good quote, isn't it? He knows it. He actually, I mean, when you get right in the middle of temptation, you just need to know that he's had to bench press more than you've ever had to bench press. And he was fully human. Another guy um, made this comment from T.H., his name's T.H. Robinson, he's a uh, theologian. He said uh, his whole life talking about Jesus was one of temptation. Think about that. Everything is temptation for him. And the very fact that he had powers and abilities which we do not possess only added to the stress. He was the fullest and most vivid personality that this world has ever known. And the very richness of his human nature exposed him all the more fully to the assaults of temptation. He's under pressure, all right? And instead of us going, well, you don't really understand, maybe we should say, well, we don't understand. He was, he was a man, fully man, fully God, and he was under huge pressure and he took it right to the end until the temptation broke. Now, some of you might go, well, was he really human you know I mean theologically you kind of go and you kind of end up in this bond in your head you're going yeah I know the Bible says he was really human but then there's part of me that's just going yeah but he was kind of God too which kind of that's like his get out of jail free card you know that's his wild card he's I'm just going to play that so I'm not kind of the same as you um, I've got a little bit more power a little bit more strength and maybe in one sense he did have more power and more strength but that didn't in any way diminish his humanity let me give you some uh, truths about Jesus's hum- humanity he was so human, the disciples had trouble believing him. I mean, think about that. It wasn't like the disciples are walking around and Jesus had this mysterious halo that was kicking around his head and they're going, oh, yeah, he's easy to believe. He's, he's the real deal. He's the Jesus guy, all right? We can just see because he walks through a door and it just opens on its own and it's, it's clear, it's really clear. No, the disciples got big problems actually trusting in him, which I think tells you maybe he was really, really human. I mean, the, the, uh, the Pharisees kind of killed him because they thought he was blasphemous, all right? Because they thought, you're just a man and you're claiming to be God. Well, you don't get that kind of reputation unless you look really normal, all right? If he walked around two feet off the ground, all right, and, uh, and Big Macs and all that sort of stuff just spontaneously appeared before him when he was hungry, but it wasn't like that, all right? People had trouble trusting him and uh, trusting that he was actually God. Isaiah 53.2 says uh, Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He worked a, uh, a tradesman's job, didn't he? He was a carpenter. That's he, worked. he probably was taught by his dad. He, he swung a hammer. He probably got blisters. All right? He got sweaty. All right? He probably hit his thumb every now and then. I don't know. Maybe you think that's... Uh, not very honouring to, to Christ and that he always hit the nails perfectly in the centre of the hammerhead. I don't know, all right? But you just need to know he was, he was a normal dude. It's not like you've got to get that Jesus guy to nail your nails in because he always gets it in the middle of the hammer. It's going, uh, it's not going to happen. It actually says in Luke 2.52 that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Well, you only have to grow in wisdom and stature if you don't have it, all right? So he's, he's born as a, as a baby, 
who's, who's pooing his whatever they put on him, all right? Nappies or cloths or, I don't know, loincloth. There you go. And he grows up, all right? He, he needed to be changed. He needed to be fed, all right? He was a toddler and he needed to learn how to walk. He was a man. He was a boy. He was a baby. He was, he was the real human deal. When, he's, when he got older, I bet you, absolutely, that his voice got lower, all right, in puberty, okay? He just, maybe he, had, he used to have blowouts, all right? That's one of the funniest things at school is dudes just going through puberty and they're just, ah, like this. All it's just hilarious. It's just uh, implicitly hilarious. You don't even have to say anything. You just kind of laugh at it, right? He's, um, he went through puberty. His voice dropped. He would have started growing a beard, right, and probably would have been fluffy at the start. Okay, and then it started to get a little bit more substantial. And then he became a man, all right? And he grew physically. He would have started off as a kid, not having many muscles, and then he's probably got pretty buff, swinging a hammer with his dad. You know, to fully mediate between God and us, you know, we desperately needed someone who was fully man. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says this. It says, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. If he's fully God, if he's not, sorry, if he's not fully God, he can't connect us to God. And if he's not fully man, he can't represent us. So we actually need someone who's fully man and fully God to help us. You see, some of this might be controversial, but I'll put it out there anyway. Anyway, let me give you a list of some of the temptations I think Jesus had. First one's this, he's tempted to lie to save his life. That's a pretty strong temptation, isn't it? Are you the king of the Jews? Well, it's just down to yes or no. Yes, he dies. No, he lives. He could lie. Well, that would be pretty tempting. If someone came in here with a gun and said, uh, are you someone who lives in Highfields? <laughs> you'd find that pretty easy and some of you would be on your mobiles trying to get people to move your gear into Toowoomba, right? You just... How can I get this done so that I don't get into trouble? All right, we're pretty good when it comes to physical pain at working out a way not to have to deal with it. Jesus was tempted to covet all the nice things that Zacchaeus owned. You thought about that before. He goes over to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. The guy had some money. He could have coveted it. He could have done what uh, I think it was Elisha's servant did in the Old Testament when uh, uh, Naaman, was it Naaman, I think, got healed by... Uh, by bathing in the, the Jordan River, I think. And uh, he wanted to pay Elisha. And Elisha goes, no, nah, uh, not going to take payment. And then the servant goes running off once he's left. You know, he's like 10 minutes down the road and he runs off. He goes, hey, hey, we changed our mind. <laughs> and it was, turns out it was just Elisha's servant that changed his mind. And he got paid for it and he ended up with leprosy and had a miserable life. But the coveting kicked in there for him. Jesus could have done that. What about this one? Uh, Jesus uh, would have been tempted to dishonor his parents when they were more strict than the others. That would have been a good temptation, a hard one. He uh, would have been tempted to take revenge when he was wrongly accused. Uh, John Piper makes this statement. He, he actually says, and I, I don't know whether I, I'm just quoting him here because I'm just not 100% sure whether I'm on board with him, but he, he makes a comment that he thinks Jesus was tempted to last when Mary Magdalene washed his, uh, Jesus' feet uh, with her hair. I remember throwing that out to my dad and he goes, oh, I don't know about that, but it's interesting, isn't it? He uh, would have been tempted to pout with self-pity when his disciples 
uh, didn't take their no-dos no on the last night. All right? Take your no-dos, fellas. This is a pretty important night. All right? But they don't take it. And they go to sleep. He's off getting it all done on his own. That's a sweet opportunity to go, you guys are a bunch of losers and I'm sick of you. All right? And just get a bit of an attitude about it. He could have done that. He could have, uh, Jesus would have been tempted to murmur at God when John the Baptist dies at the whim of a dancing girl. Isn't that incredible? That's like one of the most brutal stories in the whole Bible where uh, a chick dances nicely before a guy. He offers her whatever she wants and she says, we'd like to have this dude's head on a silver platter at our party. Now, imagine that coming up at one of your parties. That's the end of the party, isn't it? <laughs> All right? What's that head doing here? What? He's, I was talking to him the other day. It's, I mean, it's just, that'd be messy, isn't it? There's a temptation probably for Jesus to grumble about that and just go, God, what the heck are you doing? What's going on? Why does it end like that? But he doesn't. And there was lots of times where Jesus, wasn't he, didn't he just have the most incredibly sharp uh, uh, responses to his accusers? They'd come and they'd ask him all these tricky questions. Yeah, I, I imagine them getting together like a Lincoln, some kind of rugby mall, you know, they just kind of get in together and they just go, right, I have... Who's the smartest one here? Barry, you're really smart. What do you reckon we should ask him? And so Barry comes out and he goes, here's my idea, all right? And then we're having a talk. No, Barry, you're just going to have to ask that a bit differently. And they all get together and then they go, right, we've got him, all right? And they go over and they ask him and then he just almost nonchalantly just kind of cuts them down, you know? Just, no, it's not true. Now, wouldn't there been a, a temptation for Jesus at that moment after he's come up with the incredibly sharp response to just go, no, you guys... Guys, really, you're pretty, pretty ordinary. <laughs> I'm making it happen, you know. He starts to get the kind of head nod, and he's almost got the army out the window, and the, <laughs> he's, you know, he's got the, the car thing going, and he's just going, I'm making it happen around here, right? But he doesn't, okay? See, he understands. He's, I mean, the writer of Hebrews here makes it really clear that he's actually been through every temptation. Let me just get the scripture back here. The second half of 15 there says, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now this doesn't mean that he's been through every individual temptation, but he's been through all the temptations that cover them all. All right? And the classic example of this, and uh, I'm pretty keen to move on here, but the classic example that you can see of this is in the uh, temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. I mean, the devil says... Uh, make some bread for yourself, which I think is code for saying, just look after yourself. You've got the powers, you can get it done. So just look after yourself. God's not going to get it done for you, so you just you, you do it. All right? I just think, man, how often do we have that one? Just look after yourself. All right? The second one is um, he takes him up to the top of the temple um, and he says, uh, look, uh, if, you, if you jump off here, um, you can just command your angels to come and catch you and everything will be sweet. All right? And uh, I think that temptation is really just saying, put yourself in the centre. Make yourself the centre and make everyone else revolve around you. And I just think, well, we're pretty good at that one. All right? There's lots of good expressions of that one. Then you get uh, the devil takes him up to uh, a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world, shows him power and glory and says, hey, I'll give you this if you just worship me. And I just think, well, there's lots of times where we worship other things, isn't there? Lots of times. And... It's to get power and glory and to get, to get pleasure. Anyway, let's move on. I'm going to...
fly through this last bit. You know, this is probably the coolest bit, and we're going to do communion on the back of this. That you've actually, you've got a generous, reigning mediator. He's not just a great mediator. He's not just a sympathetic mediator, but he's actually a generous, reigning mediator. You see, in uh, Hebrews, there's been lots and lots of exhortations for you to hold fast to the hope that is set before you. But you know what? This scripture, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, actually tells you the means by which you actually hold fast. Here's how it goes. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I'll just ask you at this point, when is the time in your life when you don't need mercy and grace? When's that? One of the things that I've been pretty keen to do with my kids, and some of you may have heard this story before, but I think it just explains this whole concept really well. I've been really keen to teach them Christian terms early on. So um, I taught my kids uh, what mercy means. And uh, for like a three-year-old, you know what mercy means? Mercy means getting out of trouble. And there's sometimes when my boys have done something wrong and they deserve to be in a lot of trouble and I say, I'm going to show you mercy, which means you're going to get out of trouble here. I'm going to give you the opportunity to get out of trouble. And obviously you don't do it all the time because kids are not going to learn, but mercy is a very, very powerful thing. The other thing I taught them was the concept of grace. I said, mercy is getting out of trouble. Grace is getting something good that you don't deserve. Pretty straightforward. Now you can get a much more nuanced theological explanation of it, but for a three or four-year-old, it's pretty good. So one of my boys, uh, well, all my boys, it gets pretty brutal and pretty violent in the house. Not, I don't beat them up, but they try to beat me up and I have to defend myself, all right? So, and I'm sure I won't be able to within a few years. Bit of a pack mentality in there. You can't even lie on the ground without... You know, there's a rumble happening within about 30 seconds, right? They're just going to sit down and just going to relax for a bit. And then it's think, 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 think. You know, they're all on and then there's a rumble on, right? So one of my boys, when he's about three or four, we're uh, having this rumble. I still remember it. I remember uh, we're in the, in the lounge room of uh, the house that we're living in just before this one. And we're rumbling around and then I grabbed him really hard and I said, I've got you, all right? And then he grabbed me really hard. And he goes, I've got you. I said, oh, we've got a problem because we've both got each other, all right? And uh, I said, I'm going to, while we're kind of embracing each other, well, kind of embracing, <laughs> kind of trying to, I don't know, python squeeze each other, um, I said, I'm going to teach you a new word. And I said, and it's the word truce. I said, do you know what a truce is? He goes, no, I don't, because he's only three or four. I said, I'm going to tell you what a truce is. A, truth, a truce is when two people have got each other and they both give each other mercy both get each other out of trouble, which is just what's happened with uh, Israel and Gaza. And so I asked him after that, I said, uh, champ, I said, let me ask you this question. I said, do you think we ever need to make a truce with God? He goes, no, we don't. I said, why not? He said, because we're the ones that need mercy. God doesn't need mercy from us because he's not in trouble with us. We're in trouble with him. He's going, bingo, that's it. That's what's going on. And this is the thing you probably haven't even been conscious of the grace and the mercy that God's poured out upon you this morning up to this point. I mean, anything, anything greater than Revelation 19 where Jesus just slices and dices us is grace and mercy. And the writer of Hebrews says, 
you're not just getting grace and mercy, but you ought to come to get it. Not just go, thank you God for giving it to me. The author of Hebrews is going, come and get it. Come and get the grace and the mercy that you need. You see, this is really, really important because every single one of us here actually needs help because we're not God. We've actually got needs. All of us have got needs here. We've got weaknesses. And some of us, uh, probably all of us from one point to another, are just confused. Life gets really confusing. Has anyone here ever experienced confusion of life? Yeah, a couple. All right, it gets really confusing. We've got limitations of lots, of all kinds, all right? We need help, don't we? Amen to that? We need help. You need help. So what's going to be your help? Well, there's a problem, right? You need help, but you've also got sins. You've also got disobedience to God. You've also been corrupted. And it's almost like the one person that you could go to to get help is the person you need to stay away from because you're going to be in trouble with them. So you're kind of in this bind, all right? In the flesh, you're in this bind because you're going, I know that God is the one that I'm meant to be plugged into, like a power plug is plugged into a socket. That's where I've got to be plugged into, but I'm, I'm no chance of actually getting to him with all this junk unless there's grace and mercy, unless at the bottom of our hearts we know that we don't deserve the help we need, we can't actually get the grace and mercy that God provides. We can be trapped if we don't come humbly before God and seek his mercy and his grace. You see, we need help to live our lives, don't we? We need help to handle death, to cope with eternity. We, we need help with our families. We need help with our spouses, don't we? I mean, let's be honest, we live with sinners as well, right? You don't marry a perfect person and you're the only one who's got to improve. I mean, it's, I think that's why marriage can be really, really rough, all right? At times it can be a wild, wild ride, can't it? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Because you put a couple of sinners together and tell them they've got to be united on a whole bunch of stuff and they'll do really well with about 80 or 90%. When you get down to the, the last 10 to 15%, it's all out warfare sometimes, isn't it? Trying to get that unity um, in that way. We need help. We need mercy. We need grace from God to help us with our spouses. Grace from God and mercy from God to help us with our children, with our loneliness, with our job, with our health, with our finances. You see... We need help. We desperately need help. God is the answer to our help and it's an absolutely beautiful thing today that he says to you, not just that he'll give you grace and mercy, that he'll give you gifts that you don't deserve and he'll get you out of trouble, all right? And he'll show pity to you in a really, really appropriate way. He'll show you pity, but he says, come to me and get more. Come to me to get everything that you need. So when it gets hard tomorrow, he's saying, come. It's like, one of the greatest tragedies would be for God to be saying, come and get grace and mercy from me and we miss it because we don't come. We don't ask for it. We don't look for it. And it doesn't just come through someone preaching on Sunday. It doesn't just come through you praying. It comes through each other most of the time. The grace and the mercy of God comes through community and it comes through relationships that we have with each other. I wonder, Nathan, if you'd be happy to come up, mate. We're uh, just going to transition into communion and then we'll finish up. What I'd love us to do, and this is kind of a bit odd, and I'm not sure that we've ever done this at the project, but I'm sure you'd be fine at it, is uh, I've reworded Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16 into uh, a personalised pronoun. 
all right? Which basically means I put I, instead of someone writing from a third person, I'll put I in there. And I'm just wondering whether we can actually, whether you'd be happy to read it together. Because it's meant to be for a church, but it's also meant to be a personal thing, all right? It is a we, but it is an I thing as well. So I'm wondering if you'd, uh, let's just read it through. Since then, I have, you've got to say it with conviction, right? I feel like a project kid's leader at this point in time. Come on, guys, we'll get this side to stand up. And No, I'm kidding. You say it with conviction. This is a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good thing. Let's go. One, two, three. Since then, I have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. I will hold fast to my confession. Just stop there for a minute. Like you're, you're almost, and we're just going to do that again. You almost got to have some determination. You just go, I will hold fast. My, my high priest is so great and what he's purchased for me is so good. I will hold fast. I will go to my dying day. I will go to my dying breath and I will hold fast. Not because I'm so grand and because I'm so strong, but because he's so good. I will. I will. All right? He's got to get a bit of attitude about it and go, I will, all right? I will hold fast and it's not going to come down to me. It's going to come down to him, which is why I'm so confident, all right? That's what we're all about at the project here, right? When it's all about Jesus, the end is assured, all right? I will, all right? Let's go again. Since then, I have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. I will hold fast to my confession. For I do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with my weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as I am, yet without sin. I will then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that I may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need.